ahead go ahead and get started we're working on our introduction to Esther this is will be part two of that introduction and I mentioned or we talked last week about uh, sort of the, the how to read Esther theologically and particularly how do we how do we reconcile this this issue that's that where God seems to be absent. I mean, his name is not used at all. There's there's no, nothing recorded in the book that explicitly credits to God any action at all. There's no miracle in the book. And so there's this perception that God is absent. But when we, when we read it theologically, and, I, and I, I pointed out from Brian Gregory's commentary that he had five different ways that we, that literary devices, that the narrator uses here, the Holy Spirit through a human author has, has utilized to help us point to the fact that God really is orchestrating every detail. And the first one of those, just, just to recap very quickly, the first of those was the use of coincidences and, and how the, the, the coincidences in Esther just, just pile up. You can't explain them any other way. One or two you can, you can dismiss, but there are so many coincidences as we work through the book that they just they pile up and pile up and pile up, and there's no other explanation. There's no natural human explanation for those things. And in a similar way, there's another literary device, peripatia, which which just simply describes a kind of an unexpected reversal of fortune, where, for example, uh, Haman is plotting to kill Mordecai, and and to have himself exalted, and the next thing we see, Haman is actually hanging the royal robe onto Mordecai, and Mordecai's being exalted, and the place of honor that Haman thought he was about to get. So this sudden reversal of fortune. And the third one was Esther's name itself, and that her Hebrew name, when taken into the Persian language, means he is hidden, or I am hidden. And, and that's the theme throughout the book of Esther, is that God is concealed, and yet he's everywhere. And the fourth one is the idea of the omniscient narrator. The narrator tells us things about the characters that no human could know. Things like Haman said in his heart. Uh, there's no, that gives this idea of, of omniscience, which tells us the Spirit of God is at work in and among even God's enemies. And, and lastly, the allusions that we find in the book of Esther to other Old Testament narratives, and particularly the, book of, or the, the, the account of Joseph. And the similarities, even some of the texts, the, the language of the passages line up very, very closely. So those, those help us to think about the book of Esther from a theological standpoint, to see God in general, the providential hand of God. But I want to look today, and again, Brian Gregory is, is, has been, his material is really excellent on this, this introductory stuff. So I wanted to work through some of this to help us think about Esther, in, not only theologically, but Christologically. How do we see Christ in the book of Esther? So let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us as we open his word together and help us to see, help us to see Jesus, even in a story where God's name isn't even mentioned. Father, will you be gracious to your people as we open your word together, as we open this compelling story of, of Esther and Mordecai and King Ahasuerus and Haman, and all of these other characters. Help us not to see this merely as a, a compelling narrative, 
help us not to see this merely as a, a, a morality tale, but help us to see our Savior. Help us to anticipate him. Help us to long for him as we study this wonderful book together. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> One of the things that distinguishes sort of a Reformed and covenantal understanding of the Scriptures is that we presuppose that we're going to see Christ in every book of the Bible. Uh, there, we, don't, we don't assume that Christ is relegated or limited to the New Testament, and the Old Testament is sort of about the, this uh, angry, fatherly God on the left-hand side of the Bible, and on the right-hand side we have the kinder, gentler God revealed in his Son. That's not the case at all. We find Christ throughout the Scriptures. It's right on time. <clears throat> and as we think about this Christological theme, as, as we think about how Esther shows to us this sort of concealed, hidden God, but who's very much present, we find that in its fullest expression, that, that idea, that theme, that reality, in its fullest expression, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the ultimate revelation of God's hidden presence in the, in the world. And we think about this, we, we have throughout, I mentioned some of these texts last week, but throughout the Old Testament, we have this idea that God is hiding his face. In Isaiah 8, for example, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. But the hope is that one day God's face will not be hidden one day God's face will be made manifest. And what we find here is that as the Old Testament unfolds, we start with you know, the, the, the voice of God in the creation narrative. God is, is actively present, even walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. But by the time we get to Esther, which is the, the final book in the narrative section, the historical section of the Old Testament, by, by the time we get there, God's name isn't even used. And it's not as if we have this frequent, miraculous, visible manifestation of God, and then all of a sudden, God's absent. As we work through the Old Testament, we actually find there's a progression, or maybe a, a digression, in terms of God's presence. We think about for the generation of the Exodus. We, we, that, that begins with God appearing in miraculous form to Moses through the burning bush. Moses sees this, this theophany, uh, hears the very voice of God. God is actively involved, and of course we know what happens through the hand of Moses, the mighty hand of God, through to the Egyptians. And all these miraculous signs and wonders are done. So this is a very visible, active, undoubtable presence of God. In fact, as they after they're led out of Egypt, they come to Sinai. I mean, they they the mountain shakes, they hear the very voice of God, the whole mountain thunders with the divine presence, divine fire, so much so that the people can't take anymore. They can't deal with God's presence in that way. Remember what they said? Moses, will you speak for us? Will you speak to God? And will then you speak to us on God's behalf, because we can't bear to have this sort of unmediated interaction with God. God was so very present, the people couldn't even bear it. But what we find then is that 
he began, God begins to speak through intermediaries. And from that point on, prophets become the intermediaries for communication from God. God speaks through his prophets, but not directly to individuals. And so, as the generations progress, God's presence begins to withdraw. There's no longer a pillar of cloud, no more a pillar of fire, no, no more manna, no, no, no more undeniable, tangible, visible manifestations of God. In fact, miracles become fewer and farther between as well. Gregory points out at the beginning of 1 Samuel, there are a few miracles, but by the time you get to the end of the book, it's almost no miracles at all. God's presence continues kind of gradually to, to fade. Then we see in 1 Kings 19, Elijah is the last person through whom God does a public miracle when he interacts with the the 500 prophets of Baal. And and God rains fire down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice that that he had doused with water there on Mount Carmel. And in the very next chapter, though, God declares that he's no longer going to be found in those visible manifestations. Remember what God said, the way that he would be, the way he would manifest himself after that? Still small voice. In his silence, God would be manifested. In fact, that's the last Old Testament story in which God has is, is said to speak to anyone. It's the last time that we find in the Old Testament the Lord said. Which is interesting, isn't it? Then we fast forward about a century later, Hezekiah asked for the shadow on the steps to sort of reverse, to back up. And that's the last miracle in the Old Testament. It's the last of the miracles. The last instance of an angel acting upon the earth occurs not long after that when uh, it's recorded for us that an angel routes the entire Syrian army overnight in order to, to deliver the Israelites. And, and that after that, the only appearance of angels is no longer physically manifested, but in dreams or visions. So again, we have this progression of, of a diminishing presence of God. Then we get to the, to the time of after the exile, the post-exilic period. We find that by that time, there is only... The, the fire of God's judgment. In fact, Ezekiel had noted that God's very glory had departed. Now when we get to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, again, this latter part of the historical narratives, Ezra and Nehemiah, you think through in your mind, not a single miracle is there. Not a single prophet. Um, now Ezra... And the other priests, they build a platform and they stand and they they preach. They proclaim God's written word, but there's no new revelation from God. There's no record that God spoke directly to anyone, not even to Nehemiah, not even to Ezra. And you get to the book of Esther then, the very kind of tail end of the narrative, that God's not even, God's name isn't even mentioned. So from a, not only from a literary standpoint within the book of Ezra, but seeing 
literarily how the book of Esther fits in with the overall progression of things or digression of things within the Old Testament. It, it's a unique it's a unique book, and it, and it forms in a sense an exclamation mark, and it sets the table for us in a sense to cry out, "Where is God?" Not only in the book of Esther, but in in the history of Israel. By this point in their history, where is God? He's no longer miraculously appearing. He's no longer appearing even through through prophets. And then, and I mentioned last week, you get to Malachi, the last of the books in the Old Testament. It's the last word of the Lord. is is a threat of judgment. And then the curtain closes, and it's four hundred years of prophetic silence, nothing from the Lord. So there's this sort of tension that comes about then between the, the reality of, of God's, what, what seems like his absence, what must feel to his people like an absence. And, and yet, there are still faithful men and women who believe that God is here, that God is at work. And we see evidence of that in Mordecai and Esther, believing the promises of God, believing that God will yet deliver his people. But there's no immediate, no direct evidence that he's there. Which isn't that a, a true faith? To, to, when, when, when I can't see with my eyes, I can't hear with my ears, and yet I believe that God is here. God hasn't spoken to me. I don't know anyone to whom God has spoken. I've not seen a miracle. I don't know anyone who's seen a miracle. And yet I believe. I believe God's word. I believe his promises are true. But then we come to to Christ and looking at Esther through that lens of Christ, and Christ is the one who sort of resolves this tension between the God who appears to be absent and the God that we know by faith is here. How do we resolve that that tension? Well, Christ, in a sense, is the resolution of that tension, but not by doing away with it, not doing away with the tension, but in a sense embodying both the presence and the absence of God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father also. I mean, Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So in a very real sense, Jesus is the one who comes and, and gives us the very image of God, gives us the tangible, visible, physical presence of God. His disciples could touch him. They could share a meal with him. I mean, the, uh, a leper could be touched by God, literally, physically. A blind man could have the spit of the God-man rubbed into mud and put upon his eyes, and he receives his sight. It doesn't get much more present than that, does it? So here we have, we have the presence of God shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's manifested in the flesh. God is now, in, in the most in the truest sense, in the most radical sense, the infinite, eternal God is with men. He's present with men. His very name, Emmanuel, the, the, the angel of the Lord told Mary, you're to call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he represents God's presence to us. But on, but on the other hand, God is hidden in Christ. It's, it's, hard, it's not hard for us to see how God is present in Christ. But there's still the tension, even in the person of Jesus Christ, 
God is hidden. How do you think God is, how would we say God is hidden in Christ? So his glory was, was hidden. His, his true, his, the true measure of his deity was veiled. That's correct. What else? What other ways? Matthew. His power. Yeah, even those closest to him fail to take note sometimes. When, when the, the men are frightened at the waves and the wind, and they're, they're, they think they're, we're about to die, Jesus is asleep. And they, his deity is veiled from them. Even though he's right there physically present, they lose sight of that. But also, in a most significant way, Jesus' true identity was veiled from those with hard hearts who would not believe. So even as he did his miracles, even as he performed signs and wonders that, that no one could, could explain, there were those who were disbelieving. Those who would not, could not see God. All they could see was maybe a rabbi. Some of them saw a lunatic. Some thought they saw a crazy person. Some thought that all we see is the son of Joseph, the son of a carpenter. That's all we can see. All we can see is, is a man from a poor town called Nazareth, and nothing, nothing really significant has ever come out of Nazareth. They can't see God. So you see, in Christ, you have that tension still between God fully revealed and yet God still veiled. But Jesus here, uh, Gregory says, enters into our experience and thus experiences the absence of God himself. That is, just as he represents God's presence to us, he also experiences God's absence for us. So in a very real sense, not only does Jesus embody that tension where we can see in him the presence of God and the, the veiled nature of God, but then Jesus enters into space and time. He enters into our experience, and on the very one hand, he experiences the full presence of God. No one has ever, no human being has ever walked with the indwelling Spirit of God like Christ has, in perfection, in complete holiness, in, in utter dependence, moment by moment, upon the triune God. No human being has ever done that like Christ did. And yet, Christ also experienced this apparent absence. And we see this most profoundly as he dies on the cross. And, and he cries out with his final breath, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes from Psalm 22. Jesus experiences the Father, in a sense, turning his face away. Martin Luther makes this observation about that reality. He says, The suffering, failure, and abandonment exhibited at Calvary is the quintessential instance of a revelation wherein God is most magnificently unveiled while remaining utterly hidden. God is hidden on the cross, not because the crucifixion falsifies or obscures any part of his character, but because the truth revealed in a crucified Savior is inaccessible to anyone who will not look through the eyes of faith. Faith alone 
is able to perceive the truth lodged in this apparent contradiction, not because it believes the irrational, but because it is willing to yield before the unexpected, to surrender to the unacceptable. See, Paul said to the Jews, the idea of a, of a crucified Savior was a stumbling block. It, 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 was, it was blasphemous in their thinking that the Messiah would suffer. And, and of course, not just to unbelieving Jews, but even to Peter. As, as, as Luke tells us, that Jesus set his face like a flint to go up to Jerusalem, telling his disciples, I'm going up, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and he will be killed. You remember Peter's response? <laughs> not on my watch. That's not going to happen. No, Lord, that's not going to happen. And Jesus rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. Even Peter could not see what was really necessary. So as the Lord Jesus takes on human flesh in the womb of Mary, and, and as he dies on the cross, God is on, uh, simultaneously revealing himself and concealing himself. Even in Jesus' teaching. Remember, there's a point in time where we're told that after that point, he only taught by what manner? Parables. Why? To hide it. You know, sometimes we have this idea of parables. That, well, parables are, are nice little pithy stories to really elucidate and illuminate and explain complex things so that ordinary common people can understand it. The, that's not what the Bible says about parables. They were actually, Jesus said, that he, that he teaches in parables so that only those who belonged to him would understand them. They were designed by the Spirit of God to conceal not to reveal. So here is God in the flesh, and yet men, some men couldn't see it. So what does this have to do with Esther? Well, we have this, this broad theological issue of divine hiddenness. When we come to the book of Esther, we see this, uh, what, what Gregory calls an example par excellence of that very issue. Those with eyes of faith can see God very clearly. He's everywhere in the book of Esther. I mean, you, with eyes of faith, you can't not see him. But for those who are unbelieving, those apart from Christ, those who don't have faith, it's just a story about the Persian royal court. And you can't see God. He's not mentioned there. His name isn't mentioned. His works aren't mentioned. But what we find even further, as, as we do the work of, of sort of scratching below the surface, I mentioned last week that, that Christ is, is not on the surface but under the surface of the book of Esther. And as we do that work to kind of think deliberately about the way that the author uses these coincidences and peripatia and, and how the name of Esther reveals God's hiddenness and his presence at the same time. How the, the, the illusions in the story point us to the story of Joseph, which, which is obvious that God, God was at work in an active and mighty way. When we start to think through those things, we find that Esther uh, becomes, in a sense, a, um, a mirror or a lens through which we can see and anticipate Christ himself. Esther becomes a Christ-like figure. She becomes a type for Christ. 
She is a royal figure who takes upon herself the sufferings of her people. She faces life-threatening peril on their behalf. And it's because of her faithfulness that God brings salvation to all of Israel. And the consequence of that is that the people are filled with great joy. They, they are able to rejoice and celebrate their victory over evil and even death because of her work, because of her willingness to give of herself. And, of course, we see that magnified in Christ. But we see that typology. We see that Esther serves as a type of Christ. If you remember, it's been a while back, when we were working through our, our study in covenant theology, something that Sam Renahan helpfully s- describes with respect to types and antitypes, that the type in the Bible, and the antitype is the fulfillment of that, but the, the, we have a type which foreshadows something that's going to come, but the antitype is always other than and greater than. So those those two phrases to remember, other than and greater than. So here, it's not that Esther is reincarnated. The type is Esther. The antitype is Christ, who is other than. He's distinct. He's different from Esther, and yet he, and he's far greater than, infinitely greater than Esther. We have both, but we see in both of them acting as representatives of their people. Just as all the Jews faced death because of the actions of one man, Haman, we see the same kind of thing. In a similar way, all humanity faces death because of the act of another man. Paul makes that very clear in Romans 5 that it's through Adam that. Death came into the world. Sin and death entered into the world. Because of of one man's sin, every man faces death. Every woman faces death. But because of one man's life, one man's sacrifice, everyone who believes can have eternal life. And just as all of the Jews in Israel were saved by the singular work of Esther, all men, who are in Christ are eternally saved by his, what the, what the writer of Hebrews describes as that once-for-all sacrifice, the once-for-all time. So we find in Esther um, a wonderful type of, of Christ. And it's not then a story that's just a compelling morality play. It's not that we look on, to the story only for... Um, vices to avoid and character attributes to emulate. There, there are certainly some of those there, but it, it's, it's far more than that. It, it's an incredible story of not only God's providential work, but God's redemptive work, God's saving work. And when we, when we see through that lens the saving work of Christ, the only conclusion that we can see is that has to be God. Esther can't save. Mordecai can't save. No man can can genuinely save. We're seeing this over and over again in the book of Judges, uh, where even even men like Gideon, who experiences just this traumatic, or not traumatic, dramatic transformation 
from this weak, fearful, hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat guy to now he's a big, bad dude chasing down Midianites, scourging his own people who are out of line. Where does that transformation come from? Well, it's the work of the Spirit of God in him. And so we see in in the book of Esther this, this same kind of redemptive work, the same kind of powerful transformation. And it's a work that comes to its, its fullest expression, its fullest embodiment in the personal work of Christ himself. So it, it challenges us, and I mentioned last week, it challenges us to think because we all wrestle with the reality of, of our daily lives where, when was the last time you saw a miracle? I mean, a bona fide supernatural work that you, oh, that's clearly God right here. He just, he just transformed water to wine. He just raised a dead man right in front of me. Well, of course, that hasn't, you haven't seen that. When was the last time you heard God speak to you audibly? Hopefully you say, I haven't. We, we live in the same sort of, I'll use air, air quotes here, the same sort of place that Esther lived. Where we, we know by faith God is here, but he's not present in the way that we might want. Now, one day, we have a promise. One day, we will see him face-to-face. We will, we will dine and eat with our Savior face-to-face. We will walk with God face-to-face. We will have renewed, glorified bodies who are able to bear the very presence of God. That's not today, or it might be, but it's, it's not yet, not at least at this moment. So the book of Esther helps us to anticipate and and. and work through what life is like in that time of tension between God's active presence and God's apparent absence. So we see, if we look at our own lives, I mentioned last week, the, if we're honest about assessing the various coincidences in our own lives, can't we acknowledge that those pile up to such a degree that we can, we can only give credit to God? Um, none of us can look back historically and say, well, yeah, I can credit all of that to my own wisdom and intelligence to bring me to the point where I am now. Anyone want to volunteer that? I didn't think so. Or even to say the, the sorrows and the difficulties of our lives that we know we wouldn't have chosen. And yet we can see very plainly how God has used all of those things. The Romans 8.28 is... It, is in fact true after all. That God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So as we come back now, I'm going to read the first, first part of chapter 1. And, and, and thinking through not only as, as you anticipate the events of the book of Esther, but as you think about the illusions that are here in the first chapters. You think about all that's going on in all of history in the backdrop. So you have, I'm going to read just, just nine verses, but everything that's sort of loaded in history to bring us to this point. And think about God's mighty hand, even though he's not mentioned, even though he's not physically present. This is the word of God. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned 
from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. As you hear these descriptions of, um, and even the curtains, the rods, the, the linen, the marble pillars, what does that remind you of? Yeah, 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 the tabernacle and the temple. Yep, it is, it is. And and so you have, in a sense, the illusion of, and I'm, it's illusion with an A, not an I. My Texas accent is hard to hit. Illusion, illusion, how about that? I'll be from deep east Texas, an illusion. <clears throat> but we see... Looking backwards, you know, we see Babylon. We see the, the rising up and the casting down of kingdoms and kings. All here, the providential hand of God. But also we see that, that sort of looking back on Israel's former glory and seeing here's the very tabernacle of God. This was the place where God had promised his presence. And they rebelled against him. They weren't satisfied with that. And, and God had provided and had given them very explicit detail. Sometimes, it, from our perspective, it seems excruciatingly detailed. The way that all the curtains were to be done, and how this was supposed to be laid with gold, and this was gopher wood, and this was pineapples, and all these different things, and the cherub, and, and all, all that God had commanded. And the people neglected those things. And yet, even now, despite the people's neglect, of those things, their rebellion against God. Here God is dealing with them yet. Gently, patiently, mercifully, behind the scenes as it were, or from their perspective, behind the scenes. And yet God is still redemptively at work to preserve his people. And, and as John mentioned, anticipating the very heavenly realities that were, uh, again, given to us in what the writer of Hebrews called types and shadows of the Old Covenant whether it was the tabernacle or later a physical permanent temple, those furnishings, those fixtures, even, even the decorations were designed in such a way to point the people of God to an eternal reality, a heavenly
heavenly reality. So even just with those little details sort of just sprinkled in there in the very first paragraph of chapter 1, if we're, if we're paying attention to what um, the author is doing, the heavenly author is doing, we're, we're encouraged to look back at God's redemptive work and his faithful promises and to look ahead at the fulfillment of all those things. And, and then Esther in the, in the grander scales as the story unfolds before us uh, can be taken with our eyes of faith as nothing less than the redemptive work of God in, in a mighty and powerful way. And it encourages us in our day when we, we should not expect that we're going to see a fire from heaven or that we're going to hear a voice of God speak to us from a mountaintop but we can be no less assured that God is at work even more than he was in the day of Esther because God has come in the flesh. God has come and walked among us. So it's a, pretty, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful book to consider through that lens. Yeah. Well, what we find too is it's it's it, it really is literally each man is able to do what he desires because that doesn't apply to Queen Vashti. We're going to find out. We'll save that for next week. All right. Well, Matthew, will you pray for us?